All right, everyone, welcome back. This is Ryan Selkis, and you're listening to Masari's Unqualified Opinions, where each week I interview crypto's top builders, investors, and personalities to discuss the key trends in the industry. You can discover more about Masari at masari.io. But for now, let's get right into the episode. It's going to be a good one. This episode is brought to you by Nexo, the only lender offering instant crypto credit lines, which let you use digital assets as collateral to get cash in 45 different fiat currencies and stable coins. You can also park idle assets with Nexo and earn up to 8% annually. It's a company that's a strategic partner of exchanges, OTC desks, and crypto funds, all of which borrow, lend, and grow their assets using Nexo. Explore Nexo.io or reach them at institutions at Nexo.io to learn more. Save money this tax season with Luca Tax, the only tested crypto tax software. Luca's listened to your feedback. Now you can calculate capital gains and see the results using three different accounting methods side by side, all for free. You only pay if you want to access their detailed tax reports. Luca supports unlimited transaction uploads from all major exchanges and wallets and helps optimize your tax reporting so you can max out this year's refund. Luca Tax wants to help Masari's Unqualified Opinions listeners save even more this year. So use promo code MasariTax and you'll get $5 off the normal price at $39.95 when downloading today. Go to L-U-K-K-A-T-A-X.com and save money this tax season. Have you seen what the Crypto.com team's been up to lately? Talking about the MCO Visa card. It's a beautiful metal card you can top up with crypto and spend anywhere Visa's accepted. You get up to 5% back on all your spending, plus 100% rebates on Spotify, Netflix, and now Amazon Prime Travel. How about unlimited airport lounge access and interbank exchange rates? So many perks in just one card. You can download the Crypto.com app and reserve yours today. This podcast is presented by BlockWorks Group, one of the top blockchain events and media production companies I've worked with for exclusive content and events that could help you with insight into the crypto and blockchain space. Check them out at blockworksgroup.io and you will not be disappointed. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Masari's Unqualified Opinions. I'm Ryan Selkis at 2BitIdiots. Got another exciting episode today with Brian Brooks, who's the chief legal officer at Coinbase. So he's going to reveal all of the mysteries to Coinbase's internal compliance operations. Uh, we're going to talk about basically everything except for what the token teams want to know is when they're going to get listed. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to try to I'm going to try to keep Brian out of trouble, but we can at least talk at a very high level about. Um, some of the standards that Coinbase is helping to create being you know, the leading platform in the West, uh, certainly the, the blue chip brand when people think about US and, and maybe Europe and, and even beyond that um, for crypto custody and, and trading. Um, Brian, before we get into all that, uh, it, it's a little bit cliche to start this way, but everybody has an origin story. And I feel like that context is so important for how people got to the industry in the first place. It kind of informs their philosophy. It informs um, exactly what they're doing day to day. Uh, and, and I'd love to start there uh, with, with you, just helping our audience understand how you came to Coinbase. Uh, and before Coinbase, I assume you had to fall down the, the crypto rabbit hole as a precursor uh, to getting getting engaged with Coinbase. Um, what was that process like and, and over what time frame did, did this uh, transition happen for you? Well, Ryan, first of all, thanks very much for having me. This is a great, uh, great program you have and it's exciting to connect with your listeners. I really appreciate being included. I think, uh, you know, on the origin story bit, rather than just giving you a reverse summary of my resume, uh, I, can, I can really give you a deep origin story because I've I think kind of been destined for this for a long, long time. And, and so what I tell you is if, if you go back 15 years or more in my career, 
uh, a lot of what I've done as a lawyer was uh, sort of trying to figure out and fix what's broken with the financial system. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there are several early things that I think kind of pointed me in this direction. So one example I think about is years and years ago, this, this had to be more than 15 years ago. I was on the board of a nonprofit called Appleseed. We had a, a program at Appleseed called the financial inclusion program. And uh, one of the things we were trying to solve at that time was the, the problem that something like 10 million Americans received their tax refunds in the form of a check from the government. And these people didn't have bank accounts. So in order to get their tax refund, they had to go to a check casher and pay fees that were five or 10% of the check amount just for the mm-hmm. privilege of getting their own tax money back. And so we had a program at Appleseed where we worked with the IRS to aggregate uh, a whole bunch of tax refunds together and then go to banks and say, look, you might not want to bank these people individually because um, you know, they don't have the minimum balance on an individual basis. But what if we gave you a million new accounts, each of which had $400 in it? Would you then waive the fees? And when we did that, there was a bank that was willing to do that. And we got the IRS to issue direct deposits into this bank and uh, basically give these, and the bank then agreed to give these people debit cards and a free checking account. That really puzzled me why a bank would not want the individual account holders, but was willing to have all of the account holders. It told me something about the way the banking system worked. You know, the idea that many people are excluded from that kind of financial service that you and I take for granted. So that was an early, early insight of mine into there, there's something wrong here, you know, that, that ought to be fixable. If you fast forward a few years, I had some really interesting experiences in the financial crisis. Um, one of them was I had sort of a celebrity client at that time, Alan Greenspan, who was the immediate former chairman of the Federal Reserve, one of the longest serving Fed chairs ever. <clears throat> and he was called to testify before the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission to talk about what happened. And, uh, you know, was it, was it his fault as Fed chair that he kept interest rates low for too long? He had a really interesting story about that, which was, no, actually, it's not that we kept rates low. We, we raised rates every quarter for four years before the financial crisis started. What it was was, is that global capital markets had sufficiently changed that the Fed could no longer control mortgage rates, right? And that had to do with the fact that Chinese investors who, you know, had come online and at scale right around that time were investing in American mortgage securities as a high-yielding but safe asset. And so that told me there was something else broken. You know, the ability of regulators to control money flows wasn't what we thought it used to be. Then I left my law firm and I went with Stephen Mnuchin and Joseph Otting to buy a series of failed banks in Southern California led by IndyMac Bank, one of the biggest bank failures in the crisis. And if you wanted to see something that was broken, you know, IndyMac was a great example of what was wrong with concentration risk and finance. So my point is, I had a whole series of experiences over a long period of time that told me there's something wrong with the system. Can't quite put my finger on it, but there's something wrong. Mm-hmm. Then fast forward to 2017 and 18, and a former colleague of mine had come to Coinbase as the chief financial officer, and she clued me into the idea that one of the things that might be wrong with the system was its focus on central intermediaries, that when you concentrate all money flows through a small number of large banks, you get all kinds of risks created. First of all, you get the risk that they will choose not to bank the little guy. You know, that's the problem of the small checking account balance that I learned at Appleseed. And then Mm -hmm. second, you'll get them chasing profits um, 
in a way that concentrates risk in a small number of institutions, which means that when they fail, they fail big. Um, and then you have this issue of global capital flows. This was kind of the Chinese issue that Alan Greenspan was talking about at the time. And her thesis was crypto may be the answer to these things. Crypto solves the problem of central intermediaries running our financial system, much the same way that email and other kinds of distributed communication technologies solved the problem of the post office back in the day. And that was an insight I had not thought of, but I did know what was broken. And so I came to Coinbase because I saw Coinbase as the platform company trying to bring to market all of these projects that are going to fix that. That's what I'm doing here. Um, you joined in mid to late 2018. Maybe it's just a coincidence, but it seemed like around that time was when Coinbase really started to broaden its support for non-Bitcoin, non-Ether, uh, and Ethereum Classic, and, and Bitcoin forked assets. I believe at that time there was only five supported assets, and, and now there Correct. are you know dozens that are supported on um, Coinbase Pro, which was formerly GDAX. Um, now with Coinbase Custody, you know a number are are, are available via staking. Um, how much of a role did you play in coming up with the rubric to list all of these assets, um, and and how much of this was was Balaji kind of driving on the technical side? Um, or Brian, you know, having a, a slight change in course because for for a very long time, Coinbase had basically just stuck to the blue chips. Uh, and I'm curious what the inside baseball was on on how this evolved uh, and how you you kind of changed your internal processes to support the the multitude of assets without just listing literally everything, right? So there's still some quality control, but but much much more assertive in terms of what got listed. Yeah. Well, look, uh, Ryan, that's a great, great question. And, um, you know, I'd love to take credit for all of that, but you know, the old line that success has a thousand fathers, whereas failure is an orphan. So, uh, you know, I, I think there was a, there was definitely a well, team might, effort. Might be, might be too early to tell, but go on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you, if you think listing more assets is success, then we've succeeded. And if you think it's more yeah. than that, then I guess the jury's out. But, uh, but, but the, mm -hmm. the truth is there was a confluence of events that happened at that time. And I think I played a role, uh, but obviously not the only role in that. So, you know, we had a belief that Coinbase's mission here was to be token and agnostic. So obviously we have a lot of people here who do believe Bitcoin is a unique asset that has a unique ability to kind of decentralize and, and you know, kind of remove the inflationary characteristics, among other things, of fiat currencies to depoliticize money, if you will. So we do believe in Bitcoin, mm -hmm. but we also see ourselves as you know, kind of the New York Stock Exchange of, of crypto. And if you think about the role of an exchange, it's to allow markets to decide which things are the most valuable. And so, you know, comparing Bitcoin to Tezos is a little bit like comparing Ford Motor Company stock to Apple computer stock. I mean, they don't really have a lot to do with each other, but the market may want them both. And it's important that the capital markets make it possible for people to vote with their feet or with their pocketbook. Mm -hmm. So that was a philosophy that was going on at the time that I got here. And when I first walked in the door, my day one mandate was to figure out a way to crack the securities laws in such a way that we could list more assets. Now, we never want to list an asset we're not legally allowed to trade. And so, as you know, one of the big gating questions on that is which of these things are regulated securities and which of them aren't. So, mm -hmm. Bology wanted to list a lot of things. Brian wanted to unlock the platform potential of the company. But as the gatekeeper of like legal compliance, I had to figure out how do we separate the securities from the non-securities. And so, we, we noodled on that for quite a little while when I first got here, but we came mm -hmm. up with, if not absolute clarity, we came up with a, with a scale that allows us to sort of say, hey, we, we kind of can tell that there's a group of tokens clustered over here 
that may not be exactly like Bitcoin, but they really don't look anything like an equity security. And then there's a group of tokens over here that more or less look like somebody's just selling equity in a going concern, and, uh, and those things were not legally allowed to trade at the moment. So this became the genesis of what later was launched as the Crypto Rating Council, which is an industry-wide consortium that uses a framework to bucket these tokens into one of those two categories, or at least distribute them with that, what that is. We started using that framework, you know, I would say nine months or more before the Crypto Rating Council came into being. But, uh, but the story of that is, is that we wanted to be a more relevant market participant. We saw some market share bleeding offshore because there wasn't a U.S. exchange to trade some of these things. And mm-hmm. we were comfortable enough with compliance. We did carefully consult with government actors to make sure they knew what we were doing every step of the way. And I think that was part of our secret sauce. Um, I don't want to suggest that any government actor, SEC or otherwise, has, has endorsed our framework. But we've talked to them in detail about it, and it's been gratifying to hear some people um, in the government start to use our vernacular of, well, that's a four token. That might be a little bit too risky, but this is a 3.5 token. That's totally fine. Mm -hmm. Um, And and that language has now, I think, started to get some traction in the industry. Um, As soon as we saw that, obviously, our view was, look, this is Silicon Valley. We believe in open sourcing, so we don't need to own this process. It's probably better for the industry to have a common language for compliance. And that's why we created the, the, the CRC, was to make this available to anybody who wants to use it. But you're right, as a result of that scale, we were suddenly able to say, hey, it may be that we can't list 100 tokens, but there are probably 50 tokens we can list. Let's go find those. Uh, and that's what we did. Um, this is, uh, I think, maybe one of the most important issues that's confronting the West just from a practical standpoint. Um, yes, even the, the, the best regulated Uh, most polished entities would like to abide by existing law and and regulatory structures. But there comes a point where you have to forge ahead and, and, you know, basically ask for forgiveness before permission, which is a really loaded phrase that I'm sure you might push back on when it comes to financial services. But, um, but you do have to toe the line and be much more assertive if the alternative is losing most of your market share to offshore entities. Um, and this isn't like gambling. It's not like, um, you know, other markets that have, have been cracked down upon within the U.S. because clearly some of these assets have been de facto blessed because the regulators have allowed various services to emerge and, and trade assets as long as they have KYC AML policies and money transmitter licenses, et cetera. Um, the gray area is really what, what for a while was strangling U.S. companies and, and, and hurting U.S. market share. And this was the, the obvious issue with Poloniex as well and, and, yeah. and how they slowly bled out was, was having to deal with some of these challenges. Um, at, at what point did you feel comfortable with the rubric for CRC? And, and was this something that you rolled out internally at first before open sourcing? Or what, what was the path? Um, as you did diligence on some of these networks and then ultimately shared your work or ultimately, you know, opened up the rubric for, for public comment with, or maybe not public comment, but semi-public comment with a, a group of like-minded Western entities. Yeah. Well, it's a great question. You know, I, I would say that that process had three basic phases. So there was kind of a construction phase where, you know, we weren't sure we could make this thing repeatable. And, and the worry we always had was, hey, all this is ever going to be is a subjective you know, tool that expresses somebody's opinion about whether this is a good asset or a bad asset. So the way that we tested it in the construction phase is we would we would build a, a version of the framework, which 
you know, now has something like 36 questions, each of which has a weighting attached to it and, uh, and everything. But in the early days, we would, we would take the framework and we would farm our file on a given token out to three different outside law firms. And we would say, hey, run the scorecard, come back to us and tell you what score you, what score you got. You know, is this a one, two, three, four, five? And in the earliest iterations of this, what we got back was random noise. Some, some people used the framework and thought it was the one, meaning it's like Bitcoin, you know? Other people mm-hmm. said they thought it was like a four, meaning not definitively security, but a lot riskier. Um, some people came up with other things. And so we had to keep iterating and going back to the drawing board until eventually we got to a place where all three of the firms had come back and they'd get the same score. And once mm-hmm. we had a repeatable process and, and we were comfortable that any two people who were running the scorecard on a given asset would agree that it is whatever number it is, that's when we thought it's now ready for us to consider using. Now, you can make judgments about where your cutoff should be. You know, do, do you think the four is safe enough that you can list a four um, or do you only want to list threes and below? Different people make judgments. But on the factual question of what are the characteristics, you know, we, we got to a repeatable place. That's when we realized what we had was kind of like the Motion Pictures Association, right? Like you might or might not not you might not like this particular R-rated movie, but you know that the R rating connotes very specific things. There's a certain amount of violence, certain amount of nudity. That's what defines an R-rated movie, right? So once we all agree, you can then choose your choose your assets or choose your movies based on your own preference. But at least you know what's happening. Are, so, are you guys PG thirteen now, or is it? Are you are you <laughs> listing R-rated movies because that's what people wait, wait, really want to know? Yeah, well, what I would say is mostly we have PG-13s. We have a handful of high-end Oscar-worthy R-rated movies, um, which I'm happy to talk about, actually. I mean, it's an interesting question of how do you think about these, these uh, projects mm-hmm. that are not securities, but they're kind of at the frontier, and they might pose more, um, more risk of, of inquiry and interest on the government's part. So I'll come back to that in a second, but let me, let me just go back to phase two of all this. So we constructed it. We got to a repeatable process, which was a, a fairly big innovation, I think. And then what we started doing was, as we would listen to new assets, we would talk to our principal regulators, mainly the New York financial services people and the SEC. And what we would do before we listed a token is we would walk in with our scorecard. And and we said, hey, great news. We have this new tool out there, which is kind of cutting edge. This is how we're thinking about it. And... Um, you know, we, we got some feedback and it, it wasn't like an endorsement. No, no government person said this, we, we bless this. Mm-hmm. But what the reaction we did get was, okay, we like that you have a way of thinking about it, that you're not just listing any old thing, right? Process is everything if you're, if you're the government. And so we went by ourselves in this, in this middle phase and we used our own proprietary scorecard to list another six or eight tokens. This was kind of back in early 2019 is when we were doing that. Uh, And once we had gotten over the line of the first set of assets that weren't the original five, we got some muscle memory around this. We felt pretty good about it. And and then I was talking to Brian one day, and and remember, I come out of financial services, not tech. So this open source idea is kind of a new idea to me. Mm -hmm. But Brian and the tech leadership of Coinbase are all about open source. That's what Silicon Valley is all about. And, you know, at some point he and I were talking and the question was, should we, should we open this up to uh, credible other players or, or not? And we decided that it's better for Coinbase that the crypto ecosystem flourish than it is for Coinbase to hoard its one good idea and use it as like a patented, you know, technology. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's the way that markets develop it. And so at that point, we reached out to the biggest U.S. exchanges and we invited them to join. 
We also reached out to some of the most important asset managers, custodians, you know, people who have an interest in the ecosystem. Um, we purposely didn't reach out to project developers because they're the ones getting rated. So there's a conflict of interest in that. But our feeling was, for the rest of us, we're like the movie theaters. We're, we're not making the movies. We don't get to rate our own movies, but it is important that all the theaters signal to the world which ones are the PG-13s and which ones are the R's. And that's kind of where we got to. And, you know, I think one uh, criticism, you know, I don't know if it's just the noise of, of Twitter or, or um, if anyone really credible has, has come to you with this. I, I certainly think that some entrepreneurs have, have, have called it out. Um, how, how do you ensure that those players contributing to these ratings are not also conflicted, right? Because you, uh, as an exchange, if you're competing with offshore entities that are listing everything and you're losing market share, the general bias is going to be to rate things for and below, right? To make sure that an R rating is actually a PG-13, that a PG-13 is actually a PG. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, <clears throat> maybe the reverse of great inflation, right? Uh, so, so lowering the, or no, I guess, I guess it'd be like great inflation, right? You know, you're, you're lowering the bar. Yeah, we're going to cheapen the A, for, so more, there are more A's. Yeah, yeah so, so, so there, there's kind of two components here. There's um, what steps did you consider or take to avoid that initially? And then how do you make it more robust over time so that that system doesn't degrade if you run into a situation where, okay, Coinbase can credibly trade 30 assets, but now the market wants 500. So you still go into the same market share issues that you had a year and a half ago before you started listing more assets. Yeah. Well, um, I, what I'd say is there's, there's several uh, protections against that. So one is at Coinbase, we still periodically go into the SEC and we say, hey, we're just keeping you updated. These are the assets we're listing and here are the scores. And, mm -hmm. and we do periodically go and say, and by the way, here are the really high rated assets that we're not listing, right? So we wouldn't be able to do that if it was a whitewash. We'd be crazy to walk into the government and say, hey, we've, mm -hmm. we've given a whitewash to all of these sketchy assets, you know, because they would be the first ones to call us on that. So that part's a good discipline. It's also good discipline in that these ratings have to be consensus ratings across all of the CRC consortium members. So this is another reason we thought it was important to kind of open source this, is mm -hmm. if Coinbase was doing it alone, you could imagine that criticism being plausible, right? Any one company has a strong interest in um, sort of listing more assets than the other guy. But once you have a majority of the market inside the system, you know, I can't outflank my competitors at Bittrex or Kraken or whoever else is in this, in this consortium on a given day. And so there's a little bit of self-policing that goes on there. Uh, and, th and then finally, we recognize that for this thing to be credible, you know, we, with some, some tokens have to flunk. Right. Mm -hmm. Flunk is probably the wrong word, but they have to be a regulated token and not an unregulated token. So, um, you know, it's like it's in our strong interest to be able to show, hey, we got some 4.5s and some fives. And those are generally outside of our risk tolerance at Coinbase. Mm -hmm. If we couldn't do that, nobody would buy it. So, you know, we have a strong interest in our own credibility. The one other thing I'd say, though, and maybe we talk a little bit more about this as we go along, is we believe at Coinbase that being a security does not mean you're illegal. It just mm -hmm. means that you have to trade on an exchange. And we've been working hard for the last six months to get our broker dealer, which, which we have, the appropriate authorizations to actually trade security tokens. So we envision a world one day where it doesn't much matter whether you're a five or a three. If you're a three, we'll list you on our trading platform. And if you're a five, we'll list you on our ATS, um, which mm -hmm. would be a regulated environment for these things to trade. The idea that security has become synonymous with illegal in the space is a little bit crazy. 
Well, it's illegal to trade on secondary markets. That, well, that, that uh, out, outside, outside of an exchange, right? Totally legal yes. to trade securities mm-hmm. on a secondary market inside of an exchange. So where we need to get mm-hmm. the regulators to, Ryan, is a place where they understand that a, a security token is no more illegal than IBM stock, right? IBM stock's also a security, and people happily trade it on the secondary market every single day at the New York Stock Exchange. So would, the trick would, is getting all, the government to allow that. Sure, but would all of the same systems still work if you wanted to withdraw or send um, to the securities token exchanges as you would to the Coinbase Pro exchange? Because my understanding is you're, you're going to have different restrictions on inflows and outflows for, for the ATS than you would otherwise. Yeah, I, I think I think that's a little bit overblown, to be honest. I mean, I think people speculate that might be the case because there isn't yet a place where this occurs. But if you think about the way that, you know, equity securities trade on a, on a you know, the kind of exchange we're all familiar with, mm-hmm. it's it's relatively seamless customer experience. Um, what happens is you have a you have an exchange, NASDAQ or the NYSE, you have a custodian, which is typically your broker dealer, and then you have a broker, which is you know the same. So you go to Charles Schwab and you trade this stuff. There's no issue putting in market orders and for liquid books immediately getting a match. I mean, because really all an exchange is a matching engine that is able to clear. And so in the case of crypto, the one nuance is, is that the SEC has made clear they want the custodian and clearing entity to be separate from the broker dealer, but that's fine. We, you know, we've all established trust companies in various states that will be our clearing agent and custodian separate from our broker dealer. No reason that we can't use technology on the back end to make all of that super simple. So at least for, you know, security tokens that are highly liquid, um, you know, this should be the same as buying and selling Bitcoin. The customer experience really shouldn't be any different. Um, Point taken. Uh, I guess, you know, there's only so much that we can talk about there because we haven't seen it yet. Um, so right. I want to go I'll back. I'll just to- forecast for your listeners. You okay. may see it sooner than you think. Ooh, that, that's about as spicy a take as you get out of anyone from Coinbase when it comes to pre-announcing uh-huh. an announcement. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not pre-announcing anything. I'm just making a forecast. They should stay, pay uh, careful attention. Good. Uh, so I want to go back to the, the you use the term open source. Um, or at least that's within the ethos of the industry. So you want to, you know, broaden the accessibility of this in practice though, how is the CRC functioning? Because, um, I was under the impression that it, that the ratings council was engaging a firm to do these analyses and, and kind of monitoring over time. Is that opened up to different law firms as well? Or, or is this just kind of a shared pool of capital, almost like a collective nonprofit or SRO where you've got dues-paying members that are, are you know, paying for the same services. What, what, what is, how does the sausage get made, or, or what can you share about how the sausage gets made when it comes to actually studying these projects and then filling out the rubric? Yeah, yeah, I, I'm happy to, happy to talk about this. Um, so, so in the early days, as I say, we worked with multiple law firms, largely as a validator, you know, so we wanted multiple mm-hmm. smart people looking at this away from each other to come back and tell us if they could replicate the results. Yep. Once we got to that place, um, you're, you're right, we've now principally started using one law firm. It, it happens to be the law firm that's worked with the largest number of exchanges. So they just have a lot of, excuse me, a lot of baseline information about these tokens. So their learning mm-hmm. curve for any given token is relatively flatter than some other firms. Yep. So what happens is, is this. Um, the CRC members have a voting process to prioritize which assets the CRC is going to look at next. Okay. And mm-hmm. so all of the dues paying members get a say in uh, like, what's your next top five? And we stack rank those based on the number of votes they get. And we push those through the system. 
what happens then is we gather up all of the publicly available information uh, that's available about a given token. And if there is a known project developer, we reach out to the project developer and ask them to give us whatever information they think is relevant to this, right? We don't always get responses to that, uh, which is interesting. I mean, there's some people who, you know, either believe that their token is so decentralized that even though they originated it, they're not, they're not really the manager of it. So, you know, I, there are examples of that that I won't name by name. Um, but generally speaking, the project developers will send us the white paper. They'll send us various other things. We intake information from Reddit groups and, you know, all kinds of other public source information. And we package that up and we feed it to the outside law firm who initially runs the scorecard. Mm -hmm. The law firm then comes back to the council with a recommended rating and the filled out scorecard. Council members, especially the ones who voted for it, typically have run the scorecard themselves, sort of as an internal check. And so the mm -hmm. discussion at the CRC meetings is, okay, the law firm thinks this is a four. What does everybody else think? And my experience is that about 80% of the time, everybody agrees with that. We've kind of looked at it and this is objective enough. We pretty much all know what the outcome is. But 15 or 20% of the time, there's some kind of meaningful disagreement. Uh, typically, it's mm -hmm. because some member has a piece of information that the law firm didn't have, right? And so that person says, hey, here's the information. We feed that back in and we rerun it until we get to a place where there's a consensus. And that process has resulted in some tokens getting um, rated with a lower score, meaning a better score. And in other cases, it's resulted in us taking a relatively you know, low score and making it higher because of some unknown piece of information. Mm -hmm. But only at the end of that process does the CRC take a vote and we record these votes. And when we have a vote, then the thing gets rated and the rating is put up on the website and, and it's there. Now, I'll tell you, in a future state relatively soon, I think in the next couple of months, I would say, we're going to go ahead and publish the full scorecard so that people can see how that how that really works. There's obviously mm -hmm. been interest in all of that. And for various reasons, we didn't want to launch it with that because we didn't want to, you know, have a bunch of public back and forth about, you know, could question 17 have been phrased this way versus that way. We wanted people yep. to see a volume of things to understand. Mm -hmm. But that's the basic idea. It's, it's a consensus mechanism. There's a law firm that starts it, but, but they don't decide. They merely, you know, administer and run the numbers for us. And then we come back and we vote as a group as to what we want to want to adopt. Very um, similar to the Motion Picture Association, actually. That's very similar to how their process is. Got it. So, so you mentioned uh, there are some Oscar-worthy R-rated movies uh, and, and, and that you will support and list. So I, I guess the Oscar-worthy uh, best alternative currency nominees, at least in, in Coinbase's uh, nominee form, would be XRP, Tezos, uh, and, uh, and, and Maker. Uh, because they are rated for three and a half or, or, or four and a half even. Is that, uh, is that consistent? It, it, you know, it, are, are some of your decisions then impacted by liquidity of, of the tokens where you will push and say, even though this is a four, we kind of have to list it and here's why. Um, and what is the process for engagement at the, at the gray area? And, and, and how do you toe the line when you go into these conversations with, with regulators and, uh, and try to understand just whether they will allow you to continue to trade fours versus say, you know what, this is a great system, but something has to be a three or below, right? The, yeah. And now the D becomes the F. Right. Well, so, so first of all, I want to distinguish for the listeners between taking factors like liquidity into consideration for purposes of determining what the rating is, which we never mm -hmm. do. In other words, okay. just because something's liquid does not mean a four becomes a 3.5. You know, we, yep. we, we're, we have no fear or favor in terms of the ratings. But then there is the question of 
when are you willing to list a four? So, so I'll tell you at Coinbase, generally speaking, we, we haven't listed anything above a four. You, you mentioned Maker, which at one time rated higher than that, but then there were some changes uh, and some developments that led the CRC to relook at that. And so there's a, there's a predictive rating that tells us that upon the achievement of certain things, that rating is going to be lower than that. And so that's what got mm-hmm. us there. But there, there's no current 4.5 that we would list at Coinbase. I'm not saying that could never occur, but it hasn't occurred yet. There are actually, some actually now. Now that I'm looking at it, I, I don't see Maker currently listed, and and it is still at 4.5. So maybe that's consistent. Yeah, there's right. So so without predicting the future, I'll I'll just tell you that, you know, as as Bill Hinman, director of corporation finance at the SEC, has said, the nature of these things changes as decentralization and utility are built out. And so from our perspective, the legality of listing something on a given day depends on that. So there are some things mm-hmm. that initially were 4.5s or fives. And upon a re-review over time, will be more like a four or something else, and so that that'll matter. And um, you know, I'm not saying that Maker is a particular example of that, but it, it could be. Bottom line is for for the fours, you know, that's kind of our definition of an R-rated movie, um, mm-hmm. meaning some of those fours are best picture candidates for whatever reason. It could be because they're deeply liquid, it could be because they're playing a critical role in the development of some aspect of crypto that we believe as a technology matter is really really important important for the world. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, it could be that it's got some role in solving education in the developing world or world hunger or, or climate change or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so we do take those things into account in deciding which four is to list. Having said that, you know, like any responsible company, we have a risk appetite and we don't want to concentrate all of our business in four rated tokens because even though we think fours are not securities, right? That's why they're not fives. We recognize that fours are going to get more scrutiny and attention, and it is possible that we'll have to defend some of those more than threes. And and thus, we only want to be in a position of having to defend those things that have really clearly articulable value add for our customers. That's that's really where we're making decisions at that frontier. Below four, we we, we readily list as anything that's 3.75 and below, we're fully comfortable going with. Uh, Right now, CRC has 25 different assets that have been rated. Is that just what's been publicly announced? I'd have to imagine there's a whole slate of assets behind that that have either been evaluated and deemed fives uh, or that have been evaluated and just not publicized for some reason. Yeah, so, so there are two categories of things that you don't see on the CRC website. First, there's just a pipeline of things, right? So uh, it may be that we've got some preliminary ratings, but the council hasn't taken a vote yet mm-hmm. um, or you know, in other cases, as you say, there will be some fives. So the the threshold for us publishing a rating is we're we're not looking to defame projects. So so we're not looking to say, hey, this thing's a five. You know, danger. Will Robinson, the world needs to know it's a five. That's mm-hmm. that, that's not our business. The the point is, we're only publishing the ratings of tokens that one or more members lists. Right. So it's sort of like with the movies, you, you can't go to your local Lowe's theater and find the mm-hmm. rating of a movie that's not showing. They're only showing you the ratings of what's on that night. That, that's mm-hmm. kind of our philosophy as well. So there are fives, um, a number of fives and a number of 4.5s and 4.75s too. Because nobody's listing those, we don't publish those. We have disclosed that list to regulators when they've asked for it so that they can see the transparency of the process. But we're not you know, publishing that to the world for obvious reasons. This is the famous Hinman test. How does something you know be, uh, go from a security into an asset that no longer trades as if it's a security? Um, right. How sticky are these ratings then? Because there's a historical component where 
it doesn't matter how much time has passed, the way that you conducted the token sale was the way that you conducted the token sale. So that might always be a black mark for, for a given project under the CRC rating system. Um, but there is certainly a path for many of those metrics that you're grading against for a project to come into the light or gradually go from a five to a 4.5 and then a four and then a three. Um, but, uh, you know, and I know you said you're going to open this up for, for public consumption. How much of the initial rating is definitive uh, versus subject to change based on new data and information that comes in from one of these networks? Yeah. So, so first of all, you know, I'd, I'd make a distinction between the legality of us at Coinbase or any trading platform listing an asset for secondary trading versus mm-hmm. the legal obligations of the issuer uh, based on the sale of the token, right? And, and okay. I think if you look at some of these SEC enforcement actions, what you'll see is the the manner of the of the sanction, or at least in some cases, what's been discussed with with them, is the idea that the issuance was the issuance of an unregistered security, which is the violation of law and imposes on the issuer certain obligations, versus mm-hmm. the current trading of that asset on a trading platform is potentially no longer unlawful because that asset no longer has the characteristics of a of a security. So, for example, if Coinbase wasn't part of the ICO and didn't do any of the distribution, and that was three years ago, and now the token has achieved full utility and the network is fully operational, et cetera, et cetera, you know, we would regard that very likely as something we could legally trade here, notwithstanding the fact that the issuer might have had some obligations based on their original sale, which was away from us and happened long ago. In terms of how the CRC looks at this, you know, there's a little bit of case by case to this, but one of the factors, but it's only one factor among 36 or whatever the number is, uh, is was the thing sold primarily for investment purposes, right? Now, we have some thoughts about different ways that project developers could think about initial sales of tokens, and I'm happy to talk about that. But um, bottom line is, if the sale was far enough in the past, if the token is sufficiently decentralized and or has sufficient utility today, that may not result in it being rated very high on the scale. It, it, you know, maybe that that one negative factor is outweighed by more developments that have decentralized or given a utility. Got it. Um, the, how, how, how often do the ratings change? Are they revisited regularly or is it event driven? Um, what, what's the impetus to revisit uh, prior rating? Yeah, so, so the answer is both, actually. So, so aspirationally, what the CRC intends to do, and obviously this is still a relatively new initiative, only having been around three or four months, but the, the discussion has been that roughly once every six months, we would re-review assets that were previously reviewed. And, and that's just to give us some discipline to make sure that we're capturing whatever is relevant over time. You know, we mm-hmm. don't always necessarily know for any given project what's happening, so it's good to take a relook. But there's also some event-driven issues. So, you know, for, for example, if you look at the DAI token, which was originally launched as a, you know, an Ethereum-backed stablecoin, and then all of a sudden there was a significant change in the project, the idea being we're going to back it with a basket of, of, of other crypto assets. Well, that's a, that's a whole different question, and we need to relook at that. It's just a fundamentally a different asset at that point. Um, mm-hmm. So, too, it, it, you know, if you take things like uh, XRP, which... Um, which we list, obviously, but when XRP did their MoneyGram deal and suddenly had real global distribution and a significantly different utility case than it might have, you know, two years ago, say, that's relevant to our assessment of its of its utility. 
And so, those, so some of it's events driven. You know, we may read something in the newspaper that will cause us to go back on a on a more urgent basis, and if not, we'll capture it as part of the periodic cycle. Got it. Uh, we've talked you know quite a bit about the uh, CRC and 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 just the listing process in general. Maybe because it's it's one of the biggest black boxes uh, in the. Uh, industry and, and maybe the most relevant for people that are focused outside of just the casual observer, right? Your your general exposure to crypto is predominantly going to be Bitcoin first, maybe Ether first, and then everything else. Um, yep. But for you know listeners of, of of this podcast in particular, I, I find they tend to be folks who are a little bit further down the rabbit hole and 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 have a multi asset portfolio right now, which is consistent with with some of the uh, customer base that Coinbase now has. Um, I want to switch gears though and talk about a totally different aspect of your legal focus, which is on privacy um, and exactly what the line may be when it comes to FATF regulations um, and, and different standards for tracking customer behavior on withdrawals and potential use of mixing services or privacy tokens, et cetera, because this has become a major issue on some of the Asian exchanges. Um, Coinbase, Gemini have been notable exceptions to privacy coin support, Kraken, same thing, um, and, and supporting Zcash in particular. Um, at the same time, you're starting to see more anecdotes, not just from the Western exchanges, but in general, of customer accounts being flagged uh, or, or even removed if a withdrawal is made to a mixing service or a shielded address uh, or, or is otherwise hard to track and then report back to the relevant authorities. Can you, can you help people understand what the hell's going on uh, and, and like what, what could potentially get them into trouble or how you're thinking about this um, from a fungibility standpoint and, and customer support standpoint, uh, particularly since we, we seem to be in a bit of transition period? Yeah. Well, so there, there's let's, a lot let's define let's 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 define FATF first, and we'll kind of work work backwards yeah. from there. I was going to say there's there's a number of questions embedded in yeah. that question. So so if you start with FATF, you know, for for your listeners who don't know what that is, you know, FATF is a treaty organization of of multiple countries, uh, basically dedicated to you know fighting money laundering and terrorism financing globally. Um, and so FATF comes up with with policy recommendations for its member countries. It's then up to the member countries to decide whether and how to implement those those recommendations pursuant to the group's uh, the group's kind of charter and organizing documents. The most important thing FATF has done in the last year, obviously, is is clarify the application of something called the travel rule to to crypto. And the travel rule is something which you know, when applied in the banking system, basically says that every time a wire transfer happens from bank A to bank B the wire has to include all of the upstream send receive information. So who did it originally come from? And this is how you know that a, you know, wire from Mr. Smith to Mr. Jones, you know, um, in New York actually originated in Iran. As you can tell that there was first the move from Iran to France and then from France to London and then from London to New York. That, that's how you know that works. This is a challenge in, in crypto, obviously, because the point of crypto is to be a decentralized mechanism of exchange. And so a lot of crypto is not focused on institution to institution transfers. And, and as a result, a lot of the crypto uh, universe has been focused on, uh, A, what would it even look like for blockchain transactions to have some clunky wire transfer type of uh, identifying information on it, A. And B, 
a majority of crypto transactions are not exchange to exchange. They're either exchange to private wallet or private wallet to private wallet. So how do you think about those things? The position we've taken uh, is, you know, we're, we're not going to try and quibble with what the law is. I mean, we're, we're, a, we're a company whose entire brand is about compliance and being the trusted and safe place to do this. So if the governments of the Western world and parts of Asia are demanding that there be compliance, we'll figure it out. The debate right now seems to be between solutions like we're trying to build that are sort of crypto first solutions. In, in other words, blockchain based travel rule compliance solutions mm-hmm. versus other solutions that are much more um, what I would think of as traditional finance, the application of a new software layer totally away from the blockchain that w- would require exchanges to, you know, maintain their crypto business over here and then turn over here and log some something in some system of record on a Microsoft platform or something crazy like that. We've done a fairly good job thus far of bringing some of the major uh, US exchanges along with us for the crypto first solution so that at least the utility of crypto is retained in a travel rule world, but it's not mm-hmm. obvious that that will win. And so we're in detailed dialogue, I mean, even literally this week, with FinCEN and Treasury leadership to talk about how we're going to comply. We can totally build something. We can we can definitely do this, but um, it, it needs to be something that is native to the blockchain and not something that imposes bank-like requirements on us. Because if we're going to do that, you don't need crypto. You might as well just use Swift at, at that point. Uh, so I think that that's that's the important thing to know there. Uh, the only other thing I would say is what do we do about wallet uh, transactions, right? That are not mm-hmm. that are off exchange and what we've sort of said about that is, look, we can only control what we control. So that discussion is not about us. But as a policy matter, you know, the data shows criminal and fraudulent crypto transactions are quite small as a percentage of total transactions and are indeed significantly smaller than criminal and fraudulent bank transactions. And so our basic view is we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We will comply. But anything that says, hey, wallet transactions are bad, that's kind of like saying Google ought to be responsible for whatever is sent through Gmail. You know, nobody thinks that. And, and mm-hmm. that's what crypto is, is a platform for people to do what people are going to do uh, financially. Will large withdrawals above a certain threshold trigger an automatic suspicious activity report if you can identify that it's going to a mixing service or a shielded address? I think on the mixing service, I I think that that is still something that we're analyzing, and I'm not sure that there's a clear answer um, on that. I mean, these are important issues, and and we're going to continue to doodle on those kinds of things. In terms of um, shielded addresses, what what I would say is there are two different things going on. There are shielded addresses, which raise one set of issues we can talk about, and then there are addresses that have been identified over time as associated with some sort of illegal activity. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's certain kinds of gambling establishments where it's not currently lawful for U.S. persons to send or receive money from. Um, there's certain addresses that are associated with specially designated nationals on the OFAC list that we're not mm-hmm. allowed to transact with. And so over time, I, I think the way this probably plays out is a combination of industry and government will eventually build a list of banned addresses that just have to be blocked. Um, certainly a lot of the stablecoin issuers have already built, you know, if you want to call them blacklists of addresses that are known bad guys. Um, you know, if you know someone's an Al-Qaeda member, you simply blacklist that address and you build those addresses up over time. Shielded addresses are different, right? I mean, shielded addresses some, sometimes are shielded for the protection of the person who's receiving the money because they're a dissident in Cuba or they're a freedom fighter, you know, in some oppressed country. 
um, or they're the opposition in Venezuela. And one of the things that I've been very clear in a lot of speeches uh, I've given is we need to recognize that while there is obviously a really important priority in fighting terrorism and fighting money laundering, there's also an important value in protecting freedom in parts of the world where we take it for granted, but they don't, right? And where that balance is, is something that policymakers have to decide, but it's not like um, the only use of this stuff is for bad guys. That's not even the predominant use. And so personally, I think that we need to have a nuanced approach to, to privacy tokens in general and shielded assets or shielded addresses with, with that in mind. Don't want to downplay the, the, you know, the, the law enforcement mm-hmm. angle. That's hugely important. But there are other dimensions of human activity as well. So that's what, that's what I would say. These things are complicated. I think um, that all makes sense. The, uh, the, the one, you know, caveat uh, that I'd ask about for basically most of the addresses, uh, the, the issues that you've addressed so far, how different is Coinbase international uh, engagement from the home engagement, right? The, the domestic U.S. engagement, because it, it strikes me that with most of your personnel, most of the assets under management, you know, in the U.S., um, even if things are allowed internationally in some of the jurisdictions that you operate, just from a systems and, and compliance check and, and, and cohesion standpoint, uh, maybe the international affiliates are abiding by U.S. rules, potentially to their detriment, by the way, um, just for simplicity and, and consistency across um, the customer base. Is, is that accurate or... Uh, and, and maybe there's some, some nuance here, but generally speaking, is that the approach or, or are you a little bit more aggressive in, in certain international jurisdictions that might have lighter standards? Um, it could be when it comes to privacy. It could be when it comes to whether something is considered a security in the U.S. Uh, or, or across any of the metrics that we've talked about. Yeah, well, so, so the, the watchword generally is that, you know, we, we want to comply with the local law of the jurisdiction where we're, we're, you know, our entity is acting. And so, you know, Coinbase Inc., which is our, our U.S., not ultimate parent company, but sort of main operating company, does business around the world in various ways. And, and then we have foreign subsidiaries that have pieces of, of the business. What we expect we likely will do, likely this year, is stand up a more independent operating subsidiary, likely in Singapore, but someplace um, Mm -hmm. that will allow us to serve parts of the world where they have a fundamentally different regulatory philosophy from the U.S. So, so right now, you know, we operate here in Western Europe. We have a license application pending Japan, but you know, our principal business is the U.S. and Europe. Europe is not that different from the U.S. in its regulation of payments instruments, securities, um, in its adoption of money laundering rules, they're all, you know, all the European countries are FATF members, et cetera. So what I tell you is it, it's not like we have a place right now where the law is that different that would allow us more operating leverage. What we do think is there are parts of the world that, you know, have, have a different approach to all of these issues. In order for us to not have U.S. law exported to our activities in those places, we have to stand up an entity that is sufficiently independent. It's managed independently. The matching engine is separate. The technology stack is independent so that that business doesn't touch the U.S. You know, we, 
we are very, very cognizant of the fact that anytime there's a U.S. person involved in a trade or in management or whatever, that that's going to be subject to U.S. law. So to serve some of the things you're talking about, to incubate some of these technologies in places where they're needed and not have U.S. law, which has a whole different set of assumptions behind it, apply to that transaction, we've got to stand up those entities, which we're working on. Uh, Brian, what, what do you think the most misunderstood thing uh, about Coinbase may be to the broader public? Uh, because, you know, I, I think everybody has their, their own opinions. Uh, the, the casual observer sees Coinbase as the blue chip brand. Um, and then there are going to be, you know, a bunch of, of proponents and naysayers along the way. But, but from the criticisms that you've seen, whether it's on the legal side or product support side, uh, what, what do you think people don't get about either your team's role in the giant apparatus or, or the company more generally? Well, look, I, I, I'm going to pick two things, okay? Two really misunderstood things about Coinbase, um, which might or might not be based on criticisms, but they're just things I think people don't get. Mm -hmm. So one is, you know, it's always gratifying when I roll into any U.S. audience and I'm the guy from Coinbase and the respect we get, the... the um, admiration we get for our size and our scale and our early, you know, early kind of implementation of this stuff is, is really awesome. Um, what I think people misunderstand is, oh, Coinbase makes a lot of money. Coinbase is really big. They're the dominant platform. So the, the misunderstanding is we're always going to be here. What I would tell you is the regulatory environment around this stuff is so fragile that there could be a world where Coinbase isn't here. And we shouldn't take this stuff for granted. So as an industry, you know, I think sort of how Coinbase goes, so goes the nation. We, we can't uh, necessarily support all of this by ourselves. We do need the industry to coalesce around some key principles having to do with securities compliance, law enforcement compliance. You know, every time there's a data breach or a theft or anything else, it impacts Coinbase's ability to be like the standard bearer for the U.S. industry. So the first thing is don't take us for granted. We're trying really hard over here, but we're only one company. So I'd start with that. And I think the second misunderstanding is people really see Coinbase today, I think, largely the same way they saw it three years ago, which is it's a place to buy and sell Bitcoin, right? It's, 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 it's the stock exchange for crypto. What we're working hard on every day here is to make crypto more valuable to people. I think what's going to distinguish Coinbase from the competition in the future is that we've built a series of value-add services necessary for an overall crypto economy to arise. That's why we were one of the earliest and most robust adopters of staking. It's why we rolled out a margin product that's had enormous uptake in the last couple of weeks. Um, you know, it's why custody is really a huge focus for us so that institutions feel comfortable holding this asset. And, um, you know, one of the reasons I came here was I saw the company as more than just a trading platform. I saw it as the platform company for all crypto technology. And that's why I say anytime anybody in crypto wins, Coinbase wins. You know, we, we want to be the infrastructure player for people in this space. Well, I, uh, I would tend to agree with you. And I know that I, among many others, uh, first got into the industry with uh, Coinbase and uh, and purchased my first Bitcoin there. Uh, in fact, it's emergence and and backing from Fred Wilson was one of the reasons that uh, I was able to get over the hump uh, psychologically and 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 make the leap, um, as I'm sure is, is true for many others. So, uh, Brian, thanks for demystifying uh, some of the inner workings of Coinbase. We'll we'll be keeping close tabs on CRC and, and of course Masari is as a company generally swimming in, in those same waters uh, on the self-regulatory side without being officially a self-regulatory body. Um, so I'm, I'm sure there's much more to do there. And uh, we'll look forward to having an updated conversation uh, when the ever-changing world has completely shifted and 
maybe a couple of weeks or, you know, sometime later in the year. Or next year. <laughs> um, Fantastic. Well, Ryan, thanks very much for having me. It's a real pleasure. This is a great, a great work you're doing here. Thank you very much. And to everybody watching, listening, subscribe, share with your friends and coworkers. Until next time, peace. That's a wrap. Thanks for listening. New episodes of Unqualified Opinions go live weekdays at noon Eastern time. You can follow me in the meantime on Twitter at 2BitIdiot. If you want to continue the conversation or troll me, otherwise, I'll see you next week.